So I found out last week that uh, two weeks ago, Brother Mike, who filled in, to me, filled in for me, lied to me. Well, I said it wasn't entirely his fault. You know, two weeks ago, he covered for me with what I found out was zero prep time. Basically just showed up here with an open Bible and whatever prayer he did between his house and here. And, you know, he assured me that he butchered the text and told me, yeah, just go ahead and use your notes exactly as you said. And they, they really need to hear it again. And that's where he lied to me. He did a great job. <laughs> and those of you who are here know that. <laughs> you know, he did a great, you know, um, exposition of the text. So, um... Keep him in your prayers. God's got a calling in that guy's life. <laughs> He's ready? <laughs> Amen. I, I thoroughly agree. But he nailed the point of this passage, that the demand of the law was so high, higher than even the Pharisees who dedicated their lives to keep the law, still couldn't keep it in their own strength. And, and, but where it was impossible for us, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Washing our scarlet sins as white as snow, as that other passage in Isaiah read. And since he nailed that point last week, you know, or two weeks ago, I should say, you know, I'm basically going to use that as a jumping point for this morning's message. You know, that's the foundation. Add a few thoughts and maybe get a verse or two into the, uh, the coming text. But I just want to... Zero in on verses 18 and 19 for a second. Where it said, For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Not an iota or a dot. Not a jot or a tittle in some of your translations. That's referring to the smallest possible strokes of the pen in the Greek language. It's the, equi- the English equivalent is, you know, dotting every I and crossing every T. In other words, every single detail of the law is important. And, and not the tiniest part is going to disappear or be destroyed. And since... Even the tiniest parts aren't going to pass away. It's imperative, as verse 19 tells us, not to relax even the least of God's commandments. The standard of the law must remain high. And there's a reason for this. Um, Because we all have a tendency to lower the bar, don't we? I mean, I had a professor in college that uh, he said he graded on a curve where the, a, getting a 100% marking didn't mean you got every answer right. It meant you got the highest grade in the class. It meant if you got a 90 and you were the highest, everyone go, the, they go up to 100. And the person who had an 80 gets a 90, so on and so forth. Now that's, that's called grading on a curve. Um, and of course, you know, I had little incentive in that class to really give it my best because I realized I could essentially wing it and I could still get a C, at, at the very least. And uh, it, it, that, that, that mentality kind of discourages personal responsibility. 
It discourages me really hitting the books in the library late at night and making sure I'm familiar with the material, really putting in my best, that grading on a curve mentality. Which, by the way, is everything wrong with Marxism, but that's besides my point this morning. It discourages personal responsibility. But that's not really where I want to focus on. The point is we do this with the law, too. We do this with the law. If everybody's going 90 on the Garden State Parkway, there's a temptation to go 90. Even though a police officer can still pull us over, even if everyone else is doing it, it's still technically breaking the law. Even if everyone else is doing it. The bigger problem is that God doesn't grade on a curve. You know, his, his mentality is closer to pass or fail. And the bar is perfection. And why is the bar so high? It's to make it clear to us that there is only one way to the Father. One way to be saved. And by the way, this is consistent throughout Scripture. You know, God often sets the bar incomprehensibly high just to show off how great he is. Just to show that there is no one like our God. You know, one of my favorite examples is 1 Kings 18. You know, the story of Elijah and how he faced off against the 400 prophets of Baal. And um, in which case, you know, they had this they had this showdown that saying, OK, you know, we're going to both build altars and uh, lay a sacrifice on the altar. And the God who answers by fire, that's the true God. And um, the prophets of Baal went and did their thing for the for for the whole day. And Elijah just mocks him and says, hey, pour water on mine. You know, pour, pour, go, go and get some more. Douse this thing until there was a, practically a moat around the thing. And then God answered by fire, consuming the entire sacrifice and evaporating the water. He, he did all that water, in a sense, to show off. To show him that there is nothing like our God. That, that there was no coincidence. There wasn't some light spark that led to a fire and that slowly burned everything up. Everything just came down at once in this fire. Jesus also did this kind of showing off where he could have prevented Lazarus from dying in the first place in John chapter 11. But he stayed where he was for two days, so he was already dead for four days when he showed up. And he raised him anyway, just to show that this isn't one of those cases that you see on daytime TV where somebody's dead for two minutes and comes back. But something special happened so that the world would know that there is no one like our God. I say all this to point out, God doesn't lower the bar like we do. He puts the bar as high as possible, <laughs> just so he could show us that he can do the impossible. And that's why Jesus is saying we can't lower the bar in terms of the law. We can't let one dotting of the I or one crossing of the T get relaxed. The bar is that high on purpose. <laughs> and it messes with the analogy. It takes away from the glory of God. By showing that he can do all things by fulfilling the law for us. So to kind of tie a bow between my part of this message and Brother Mike's from a few weeks ago. I want to summarize this by saying that when I look at verses 17 through 20. I see these points. I see three main points. That your righteousness must be greater than the scribes or the Pharisees to be saved. 
that not a dot or an iota of the law will pass away from the law. And the bar will not be lowered from us, for us. But those who are in Christ will be just fine. As Christ has fulfilled the law for us. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it for us, as Brother Mike explained. But let's keep that summary in the back of our mind. As every, as all of those points, or rather, let me take a step back actually. Every verse for the rest of this chapter comes back to those points, comes back to that summary. This is really the key of understanding the rest of Matthew chapter 5. As Jesus then goes on from here to really go after these scribes and Pharisees and their misunderstanding of what the law was. Thinking that it was something they could fulfill. Thinking it was something that they could do. And their erroneous false gospel of works. So if I were to title the rest of this chapter, I would title it something like, How High is the Law? We're not going to get that far, but I want to show you what I mean in verse 21, actually, where it says, You've heard it said that, or or you have heard it, you've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Let me just take a step back so we get the full picture of what Jesus is saying. He said, you heard it said, but I say unto you. Now it's interesting that the context at first glance appears to be scripture. Is Jesus elevating his own words above the scripture? Is he contradicting what he had said earlier in the Old Testament law? That's an important question. But he's really doing two things. He's clarifying, for one, what the the scripture really means. And two, he's discrediting the people who have taught on these subjects. The rabbis who have gone before him teaching on these things. Let me illustrate what I mean for a second. In another uh, class that I took in college, one of my senior philosophy courses, I actually lost a few points on my paper because I didn't cite enough primary sources. I know I'm confessing all these things in front of Dad. (laughs) I did good, I promise. (laughs) But I I lost a few points because I didn't cite enough primary sources. I was doing a paper comparing two different philosophers on on a particular subject. And... Rather than read their huge tomes of work, I kind of took a shortcut and I read books about those guys. And I built my paper based off of them. And I lost a few points when my professor looked at my citations. And I remember he told me something to the effect of the, the most clean streams come at, well, the, the most clean water comes at the head of the stream. The clean water, the cleanest water is at the head of the stream, closest to where the idea came from, is going to be most pure. Because those guys that I was reading, they could be wrong. They could have not understood the argument that they were reading. He wanted me to go back to the source and go from there, which, you know, makes sense in, in the classes that I was taking at the time. And that's exactly what is happening here that Jesus is calling out these people for. You know, many people in Jesus' time hadn't actually studied the scriptures. They read and heard what people had said about the scriptures. 
They hadn't actually read them or studied them at length themselves. And because they hadn't read the primary source of God's word, they started to drift away from the, from, from the truth. You know, it's kind of like what happens when we're on the beach in the summer. Can you tell I'm getting ready for, uh, I'd rather have that nice warm weather. I'm looking forward to that. But when, when you're in the water, you drift. And it doesn't matter if the guy next to you is still the guy next to you. He's drifting too. You're all moving down. If you're not paying attention, you could end up in the next beach town over before you look up. Unless you have a nice colorful like beach umbrella that you are looking to you, your focused point to remember that's where I need to be, you can end up drifting pretty far before you look up again. And... That point for us as Christians ought to be God's word. This is our fixed focal point. This is what we have to keep coming back to. Not the teachings about scripture, but scripture itself. Because we can be wrong. Preachers like myself can be wrong. Whole denominations can be wrong. I mean, case, case in point, the, the church down the street says that uh, they're the only ones who have the authority to interpret this book. Which I find hilarious because half of, their, half of the things they believe you would never get to if you were just reading this book. I don't mean to come out attacking anybody, but it's true. A healthy church will be led by God's word. Where not even the pastor is above his word. And if I or anybody else comes up with something that, you know, doesn't square away with these truths, you have the authority to call me on it. And I hope you guys do. I'm going to say something that's a little bit off one of these days. You have my permission to correct me. I love that. So that means you guys are paying attention. Which means you guys are looking back. You guys are focused on that metaphorical beach umbrella, making sure we don't drift. I invite you to do so. So in this specific sense, he says, um, you have heard it said that you shall not commit, you shall not murder. And by the way, before we go any further, it says murder, not kill. That's an important difference. Some of the older translations, the King James especially, uh, got that word wrong. That the, the Greek word there, as is reflected in some of, some of the other literal translations, is clearly murder, not kill. And the same thing with uh, Exodus chapter 20, where he's, uh, where he's quoting from, in the, in the Hebrew in that case. Because murder is roundly condemned in Scripture. Killing is not. The Bible gives place for self-defense. It gives place for uh, defending your country. It gives place for all of those things. There's a distinction between going out and bringing justice into your own hands and protecting yourself and the ones that you love. This, this, this verse has been misapplied for years to promote pacifism, but the Bible doesn't teach that. It gives place for all of these things. There's nothing ungodly or less holy about protecting your family or our brave men and women in uniform who are laying down their lives or willing to lay down their lives to protect the, those that they love and this country that we love. That's an important distinction there. Now, when, I, when you hear the word that Jesus say, you shall not murder, 
I hope our initial reaction is, oh, thank God I've at least kept this one. Or I, I, at least I hope that's your gut reaction. Your silence is making me nervous, guys. <laughs> but then Jesus goes further, shows us what this verse really means in context. And then that's when we begin to lose hope in our own ability to save ourselves as I'm sure the people hearing Jesus say this from the first time might have felt. So, I mean, you look at the common thread. What is the common thread between murder and hurling insults at somebody and all, all of these examples Jesus gives? It's anger. Anger is the fuel that gives place for murder, that gives place to insults. And the... The rabbis in their traditions had mistakenly taught for so long that, oh, if you don't actually murder someone, you haven't actually sinned. You know, it's the outside that matters. Bypassing everything that Jesus is saying here. Missing what the law was really trying to get at. Jesus shows us that the, tru- the, the truth, that sin begins in the heart. Long before any action is taken. You know, this, can, this should convict all of us. As we've all been angry for a less than holy reason at somebody, at some time. At a loved one, at a parent, at a child, at a, at a co-worker, at your boss. And you know, I'm, I'm no saint in a stained glass window. I've been angry at people out of all of those categories over the years, if I'm honest. And I can't just dismiss that this morning as if, oh, it's no big deal. It kind of is. Because Jesus is saying that anger in my heart is the same fuel, that the, 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 same, the same wickedness in my heart exists that can lead to murder, that can lead to insults and hurting these other people. Because I can't say I'm not hurting anybody because if it's allowed to express itself, it will hurt somebody. And Jesus is saying, that's what's wrong. Jesus looks past my external appearance and looks at my heart and says, John, no, there's wickedness there too. That needs to be dealt with too. That is how high the bar is, where even my external actions aren't good enough. It's my internal actions that condemn me, my internal heart. And not a dot or iota of this standard is going to pass away. We're going to find this to be true of the rest of the things that we cover in this Sermon on the Mount. But the hope that I can offer is thanks be to God for Christ Jesus our Lord. Because, like I said in the summary, you can't forget that Christ has fulfilled the law for us. That is the comfort that we are going to receive as we see how condemned we are going through this sermon. Because he fulfilled it. We would all stand eternally condemned if he didn't, but because no one can live like this. Nobody has. It's too high of a standard. That bar is so high. That's why every day we ought to rejoice that Jesus took our sins on the cross for us. That even though the calling 
is, as we read in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. The standard is to be as holy as God is holy. And that's too high for us. That's where that scripture we read last week of in Isaiah comes, comes back in. That come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as red as scarlet, behold, they shall be made as white as snow. The most pure thing the Hebrew minds could imagine at that time. That's what Jesus is offering to do to each of us today. Not to begin that process, but to complete that process in us. It was already accomplished on the cross. That's why Jesus said on the cross, well, you guys know what he said. He said, it is finished. He didn't say it is starting. He said, it is finished. I have purchased your salvation. I have paid the price of each one of these sins. Right down to the deceptive wickedness of our hearts. That, my friends, is amazing grace. That is amazing forgiveness of which we are all so blessed to be able to have to us this morning. Call upon the name of the Lord. Receive the forgiveness that is so freely offered because none of us fulfill the law like this. But he has in our place. Thanks be to God. Amen.